Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark. It is October 22nd, Wednesday. Oh, God, why are dates so hard for me? Amy would never make that mistake. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It is Thursday, October 22nd. I'm Tori Stilwell, a U.S. economics reporter in D.C. with Bloomberg News. I am with my colleagues and co-hosts Dan Moss, our executive editor for International Economics, who just landed in Ottawa, and Aki Ito, our editor for Benchmark in San Francisco. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi, Tori. You guys are always traveling. I'm just stuck here in D.C. Dan, Send me to Sydney. I'm ready to beach it up there. <laughs> well, I'll have to give you some great recommendations before you go. Okay, deal. So, Aki, you've been in Japan for part of the last week. When did you get back, and what perspectives on the news did you bring back with you? Uh, well, I got back late Saturday night, and I had a wonderful time there. I thought I'd talk about the Bank of Japan or maybe Chinese economic statistics today because I was in Asia all week. But then I just saw this piece of news roll in this morning that was really interesting. It's a little nerdy and a little niche, but there's this government committee that oversees Sweden's central bank. And apparently they're getting together to potentially revisit the central bank's mandate there, which sounds like really technical jar- jargon and really boring, but it could potentially be a really big deal if it does end up leading to some legal changes to uh, the way Sweden's central bank operates. Um, and right now, Sweden has this inflation target of 2%. Some people are saying maybe Sweden needs to raise the central bank inflation target to create more of a cushion between the target and zero percent. Some people are saying maybe you need to lower the inflation target because uh, you you shouldn't really have this goal that you can't achieve at the end of the day. Um, But it comes down to this question of what happens when you have this goal, but you're not able to deliver on it for years and years and years. Um, So I'm going to be watching this really closely. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, That's really quite sexy. That country's central bank, the Riksbank, was one of the first uh, to adopt inflation targeting. And more recently, they found themselves in the crosshairs, um, principally, but not only, the crosshairs of Paul Krugman, for raising rates quickly once what appeared to be the worst of the global recession was over, only to find themselves in a situation where they had to reverse and not only cut, but do QE. So it's quite fascinating. There's almost a parable of modern central banking there. Yeah, definitely. They're really ahead of the pack. Um, Tori, what's your, what's your current event chatter of the week? Well, I am focused, as always, on the U.S., and uh, right now we're in the midst of this like monthly cycle of housing data that we get, and it actually turns out 
things are looking pretty good. Um, home builder confidence is at a decade high, which is great. We got Housing Starts data on Tuesday that showed that construction of new homes rose to the second highest level in eight years. So that's great news. We're going to get more data over the next week. Um, so I'm definitely keeping an eye on that. Cool. So, Tori, the idea is housing will help underpin things while manufacturing and exports are suffering? Precisely. Consumers have really been doing the heavy lifting for growth in the U.S., and this shows that housing is no exception. Well, I want to talk this week, Tori, about a story that you published on Monday called Social Skills Are the Last Line of Defense for Humans Seeking Work. And what better date? We're recording this on Wednesday, October 21, 2015, the date Marty McFly arrived in the future. Now, we've all written and read stories about robotics and their increasing use in, say, vehicle assembly lines. But most of that commentary has also suggested that more people-focused, softer, emotional intelligence skills in the workplace, they're still some years away for robots. But you had an interesting adventure with somebody, or rather something, called Amy Ingram when you were developing this story. Why don't you talk about Amy and how she is essentially what this story is about? Yeah, so uh, when I was doing research into this story, I initially saw um, a great paper out by David Deming over at Harvard University about social skills and the job market, and he basically found that almost all the job growth since 1980 has been in work that is social skill intensive. So um, while I was doing a little more research, I wanted to reach out to this founder of a technology startup. They do virtual personal assistance. I sent him an email. Can we set up a time to chat over the phone? He's like, no problem. I'm going to have Amy set it up. Amy, can you just take it from here? Um, so she sent me a preferred date and time. This is around 6.45, 7 p.m. And I actually had an event that night, so I wasn't checking email. Then at 3.21 a.m., she emails me again and is like, I wanted to follow up. Of course, I didn't see it because I was sound asleep. And four hours later, she sent me another email. This is about 7.20 at this point. <laughs> and is like, I haven't heard back from you about this meeting. So fortunately for Amy, I'm up and getting ready for work. And I'm checking my emails. I'm already stressed about getting out the door. And Amy keeps bugging me about this meeting that I could handle like as soon as I got to work. And so I think I got a little irritated with her. I thought it was a, n there's no way that a human's going to email me at 3 a.m. about a meeting. Um, so it was, it was at that point that I was like, all right, this has got to be a machine. And when I brought up this whole experience to Dennis Mortensen, who is uh, the founder of Amy, I guess I should say, um, he was like, this is exactly the thing that we're looking to figure out. You know, how many social skills do we need to embed these agents, these machines with, and how do we do that? Okay, so just so we're clear, Amy Ingram is not a person. Um, she's a she's a machine. She's a virtual personal assistant. Um, she answers emails. She sends emails, and she sets up your meetings. And for, for and Amy Ingram stands for artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, they share they share the same initials. Um, and Ingram uh, is actually God. This is like so over my head. He was trying to explain it to me, but it's like a model used in natural language processing that helps machines understand human speech. Um, so you know, for all of, like the the Uber nerds out there, they're probably like, oh yeah, that's so cool. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's she's a robot for sure. And every any listeners who are interested in this, it's uh, the website is x.ai. If you guys want to check it out, you know, one of the things that intrigued me about this story is it suggests that because Amy is sort of groping for some emotional and empathetic characteristics that it's not that far off in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think computer scientists will quickly tell you that uh, they are trying to figure out how to at least get robots to mimic social skills. Well, Aki, you're in San Francisco. You're in the heart of all this, and you've spent a lot of time writing about the impact of technological advances uh, on the economy, not just the macro economy, but what's happening in the micro economy at an enterprise level. Right. Did Tori's story mesh with your experience? Did it resonate with you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I wrote this big story about artificial intelligence um, about a year and a half ago. And even since then, even in that year and a half, there's been a remarkable amount of progress in that field. It's amazing how quickly scientists are making progress in this field. But at the same time, you know, one thing that I learned that was really important is that there are a lot of things that computers can do, but there are many, many, many other things that computers cannot do. Um, our human brains are amazing. They're so complex in ways that you never would have thought before and are capable of doing so many things that robots aren't able to do. Dan, you said like it feels like we're not that far away from computers being able to replicate the full social skills of a human being um, from the conversations that I had with artificial intelligence experts. Most people felt that this was something that was decades and decades away. We should probably define what we're, what social skills are, what qualifies as social skills. What do you guys think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, let's let's start with this. So like, you know, imagine this kind of spectrum between uh, of tasks. Some tasks are really repetitive. You're doing the same thing over and over again, and it's easy to write out a full instruction manual of what you're supposed to do. There's this, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there are tasks that are really complex, really diverse. You're doing something different every single day. It's really creative. You're you're coming up with novel solutions all the time. The kind of tasks that are on the repetitive end of the spectrum are really easy to replicate, and those jobs are already gone. You can think of something you would do in a factory, in like an auto factory, for example, where you're putting on the same part over and over again. Those kind of jobs are gone. But you think of something really complicated, like um, being uh, an executive editor like Dan, where you're making all these different decisions every single day, you're providing oversight, you're coming up with new things. That's the kind of thing a computer um, hasn't been able to do yet. Right. So it's a sense of collaboration, reading people, like kind of working off of social cues. All those things qualify as social skills. And at least one expert that I talked to said that you know, upward of 80% of the workforce needs at least some sort of collaboration to get their job done. So it's a lot but of people. But if we've advanced this quickly, what makes us think that that final stage is still 
some steps away. Because, Aki, this made me recall a story you wrote in 2014 about robots being deployed in lawyers' offices doing legal work. You know, that's a whole other step away from the generic shot of a robot putting an engine head into an SUV. Yeah, definitely. So this was, you know, a very specific task in that lawyers um, currently are performing called, you know, it's document reading and this initial stage of litigation where you have to decide which documents are relevant and which documents aren't relevant to your case. Before, it was impossible to have computers do that because it was just too complicated of a task. Every case of litigation was too different in order to kind of come up with this like master set of rules. But they found a way to do that that by um, uh, giving a small group of lawyers this small subset of documents and having them say whether something is relevant or not relevant. And the computer is watching those humans make those decisions, and then the computer learns from that experience and is able to amplify that experience across a much broader set of documents for that specific case. Um, this leads to a lot of savings in, in dollars, you know, in terms of like the labor that you have to employ, and it also makes uh, the litigation process go a lot more, um, go much faster. But I feel like to really illustrate how far away robots are in terms of just really being able to emote very well, maybe we should try to have a little bit of a conversation with Siri and uh, see how that goes. Yeah, let's do it. Siri, I'm feeling really sad today. (laughs) I would give you a shoulder to cry on, Victoria, if I had one. Thanks, that's really nice but it didn't really make me feel better. You're welcome. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, um, I'm not sure that has quite the same effect as if, you know, Aki was asking me exactly why I was sad. Aki, I feel like if, if I told you I was sad and you didn't ask me why or try to make me feel a little bit better about it, I might have to unfriend you. So that's that's a you know a kind of social skill that Siri has been unable to learn yet. Right. Well, can we follow or um, friend Amy? I mean, let's talk a bit about Amy. Does she or it exist inside a computer, inside a microchip, or in this chap's office, Tori? Is there a humanoid-looking machine typing away at a keyboard? And her or it, the name happens to be Amy. What are the dimensions that we're dealing with here? Amy is a machine. I mean, she's not she's not a robot sitting at a computer typing. You know, she she recognizes the machine recognizes patterns in the emails. You know, today, tomorrow, a time, and they use that very similar to how Google does. If if any of the listeners out there have Gmail, I'm sure they see when, when someone sends an email with a time and a date, they'll see these dashed lines under it and you can add it to your calendar. Um, you know, Amy is, is analyzing these, these dates and these times and these words um, and being able to respond to that and, and add it to your calendar. So um, I don't think you should think of it as like a, a robot sitting at a, at a computer like slaving away at a keyboard (laughs) should we be scared of amy well i don't think we should be scared of amy as uh dennis mortensen again the creator 
um, said. He's just trying to sort of eliminate this email back and forth that any human has to do. Whether you're lucky enough to have a personal assistant and your personal assistant does it or like Aki and I have to do it. Um, he just wants to eliminate that so it frees you up to do things that are more productive and more worth a human's time. So I don't think we should be scared of Amy. It's really interesting because while I was doing research for this story, I was able to talk to people about what they think the future looks like in terms of how much work robots will be taking over, etc. And uh, Pedro Domingos over at the University of Washington. He's he's the author of a new book on machine learning called The Master Algorithm, if any of you guys want to check it out. Um, but he sort of envisioned this world where robots will be able to do basically everything that humans currently do now in their work. But there are going to be certain things that we'll want a human touch for. So, you know, you don't want to go to the bar and, like, pour out, like, your feelings about how your girlfriend dumped you to a robot <laughs> bartender. You want a real bartender who can take a shot with you and who you can, like, go back and forth on how terrible she was. Like, you want someone who really understands what you're looking for. And he says that that these things are going to start to command a premium in the labor market, and there's going to be way fewer of them, uh, but they, they will still exist. They'll be a, a luxury, sort of. But also, in that new world, we're going to totally have to rethink how people get money, how people live. Um, there's this idea floating around about basic income, and it's this this theory that, you know, as robots basically take over the way that we earn a livelihood, you're going to have to be able to guarantee people some sort of fixed amount of income um, that they can spend, whether that comes from the government, whether that comes from taxing the people who create robots that are going to take all our jobs. Uh, we're going to have to change sort of the distribution of capital because right now you earn money based on you know the scarcity of your labor. Um, and, and once robots are taking that over, the money is going to be held by the people who control the robots, who invented them. So we're going to have to rethink that. Going back to your bartending example, like if you're a really, really amazing bartender with these incredible interpersonal skills and you're really warm and you make these like really cool creative cocktails, then yeah, your future is golden. You're going to be fine. And if anything, you're probably going to be making even more money in the future. But if you're kind of like a middle of the road bartender, like, you know, you're you're kind of friendly, but not that friendly and your cocktails aren't that creative. It's pretty much, you know, the same stuff as what's on other menus around the city, then uh, your future isn't that bright. That probably means that your job is um, much more vulnerable to robots and, and software. Right. Um, Creativity is going to be just a huge game changer. It yeah. already is now, but that's going to be really how you can leverage yourself is, is what these experts said. Right. So I can't help but feel like it would lead to more inequality in terms of who wins and who loses. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of some of the issues we talked about in our inaugural episode uh, with our friend Barry Bosworth of Brookings. He sketched for us a history of automation going back to the spinning wheel, steam engine, electricity, personal computers. Where do you think Amy and machines like her fit into that historical sweep? 
there's this weird dichotomy where we have people who are both afraid that robots are going to take all our jobs and also afraid that we're not innovating enough, uh, that productivity is just going to be sluggish forever. I don't, I don't know which one is right. I, I don't think it's probably at either extreme. I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, the the so-called internet of things is really changing how we look at productivity and how we use technology to get data and to drive decision making and to to make our processes more efficient and smarter um it just it may take some time for these things to show up in the data i think that's what people are trying to figure out but dan i think i have a more important question and that is are you a robot no humor, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) I'm real, Tori. We should probably wrap up. (laughs) Tori, Tori, you know, we started this episode with a question of whether a robot will be able to take our jobs. Should we ask Siri? Oh, yeah, we should definitely ask Siri. Okay, let's see what she says. Is a robot going to take all of our jobs? Interesting question, Victoria. All right, that was a super lame answer, Siri. <laughs> Could your magic eight ball have answered that? Yes, question? yes. Old technology for the win. Siri needs wow. some work. Thanks again for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We will be back next week, and you can find us on Bloomberg.com, iTunes, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the places, um, as well as on the Bloomberg Terminal. And if you're on any of those platforms, please take a moment to rate and review the show so other listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can reach us and follow us on Twitter at DanielMossDC, Tori Stillwell, and Akiito7. We'll see you next week, and I am not a robot. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.